Oh, Father, I love you, and I love my brother. Lord, I pray that you would be with him, that you would fill him, that you would allow him to share the good news of your son with those in Lander and the next place that he goes. Lord, I thank you, and I just ask that you will continually be with him, and let us never forget him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I call this sermon a gentle and a quiet spirit. I'm going to read the text for us first. 1 Peter 3, 1-7 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respect and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let me get this right, Pastor Bill. (laughs) You give me a sermon to be subject to the government? And then you give me the sermon where I'm telling women that they have to be subject to their man. I'm pretty sure the only thing scarier than being subject to the government is having your wife mad at you because you tell her she must be subject to her husband. Man, it's some difficult text. I mean, pastors, we tend to do one of three things when we get difficult text. The first one is that we skip it. And I'm here to tell you that this church will never skip text. The second one is we skim it. We tend to direct it towards something that's not so scary. I mean, honestly, it's a lot easier for a man to sit up here and and challenge another man than it is for a, a man to sit up here and challenge a woman. You see, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman. Other than the fact that you do way more than we do, my wife continually tells me that. I mean, all joking aside, I mean, ladies, you do so much. And you see, we tend to, we skim through verses 1 through 6, and then we spend a long time on verse 7, and we we hammer man's responsibility, and that's fair. I mean, us dudes, we need to be hammered, that's for sure. But the problem is that we don't address half, or over half, of the population of the Christian body. And you see, I've skimmed this text before, and I'm not going to do that today. And then there's number three. We use it to establish supremacy. We convince the women in our lives that they are to stay with us no matter what. Because God is the authority and He gives man this authority and and we should stay with us and and we need to just be quiet as as women and be respectful and do whatever we ask. And It doesn't matter how ridiculous or vulgar or abusive we are. And I'm here to tell you that in no way In no way does this text allow a man to dominate or abuse or neglect their wives. In fact, it does the exact opposite. 
in all three of these. All three of these things are wrong. And I believe today a woman deserves to hear this, this biblical perspective, even if it's from a man as a pastor. And I ask that, that women examine themselves and that we learn from this biblical text and, and how we can be valuable agents in the kingdom of God. You see, when I skim this text, when I only address men, I do a disservice. And Peter is clearly laying out here the biblical principles of what a believing woman should be like. A Jesus lady. Every bit of God's Word is valuable. And I get it. The truth of this text is that it's addressing the smarter sex. I mean, that's given. But so often, sometimes, when we're the the smarter person We're not able to listen to somebody that may not be as smart as us and get this this little bit of a nugget that may help us as we walk this walk with the Lord. So I'm asking you women to to stay with me today. To to hear me out. To don't just judge one thing that I say, but, but hear it all as a whole. And men, I'm a professional. Please do not try this at home. I need you to let the women in here hear this message. There's no slapping on the thigh, telling her I said you, you, I told you so, or I don't want to hear your women coming to me and saying, you know, Pastor Zach said this, so I'm using it to, to win an argument. That's not what I want to hear. And I also look at my wife, and I need to speak to her. I, I have to be her pastor right now, and not just her husband. I need to hold to the words that I speak up here and leave them up here and let her discover what what God is calling her to do. Her side of the marriage. A godly marriage. And I don't know about women's Bible studies, but but men's Bible studies, we're always being challenged to, to stand for something greater in this world. Stand against what the world tells us a man is supposed to be like. The world defines us as, as how many beers we can drink, or how many women we can score, or, or how much money we have, or what we know about houses or, or cars. All these things that, that were to be different in the church. You see, there's entire Bible studies based on 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14. It says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. The problem is this phrase, act like men, is actually courage or or to be courageous. And and this stands for women just as much as it does for men. And being strong and standing firm for women does not mean feminism. It means being Christ-like. Being courageous does not mean controlling your man or, or dominating this world. It means standing for what God has perfectly created. I mean, only God can create equality while at the same time giving each person this unique role and purpose, which are true in all relationships, not just our marriages. And here's the deal. Being subject to Christ, it's easy for the most part. But being subject or obedient to your husband is hard, and I get it. I mean, I would have a hard time surrendering to this too. We have no problem surrendering to Christ. But there is no way, there is no way we're going to surrender to our husband. And I ask us, when we read this Bible, do we really believe that we don't get to choose what we like and what we don't like? And stay with me. 
I mean, God, throughout the Bible, is calling us to live a life different than what this world would say. We look at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, and it says that, that Peter is, is asking us to suffer for Jesus and to, and to still do good. And what will happen? We will, we will see us as, as gracious. Every one of us is like, heck yeah, that's awesome. But suffer for your husband? I get it, that's gross, but that's some, that's some serious suffering. But I ask us, how important is your man? Would you do anything within God's moral standards for them? And as we look at this text, we can never lose context. That's what this supremacy crowd does. They look at the text and they put everything in today's terms and forget the cultural aspect of why Peter is even saying this in the first place. Christianity is in its infancy. And guess who's coming to Christ faster? Women, of course. According to polls, the the average attendance in a congregation is 61% female and 39% male. Women are smarter. And women at this time, they were considered property. And they're discovering this, this freedom in Christ. They're discovering this life in Jesus. Freedom in Jesus. The way God intended it. And they're struggling with how this, this looks in their relationship with an unbelieving husband. In the Bible, it tells us not to marry, to not be unequally yoked. Which is somebody who marries somebody that's not a Christian. But imagine at the beginning of this. How many women are coming to Christ before their husbands? Let's look at the text. 1 Peter 3, 1-2. through 2. Likewise, wives... We have to stop there. Likewise is, is, is connecting it to the, to the text before. We must never disregard this, this text before. And Peter is, is telling about this, these different areas that we as Christians should obey and to follow. And he generalizes what it means to, to become subject to Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.1, he tells us to put away all malice and deceit. In verse 4, He calls us chosen and precious. Verse 7, God gives us honor. He calls us a royal priest. He declares us holy. He claims us as His and He gives us mercy. In verse 9, He saves us and calls us His people. In verse 10. And in verse 12, He instructs us to give honor and to do good and to glorify God. I mean, this is some cool stuff that God is telling us, that Peter is writing, but it doesn't stop there. We can't forget that the main reason that Peter is writing this is he has to address this people group. I mean, because the Bible has done something revolutionary. It has completely disrupted the social order of the culture of the time. It gives equal standing in God's kingdom to slaves and to women. I mean, God and His Bible is the greatest equalizer of all humankind. Without the Bible, I'm not sure where we would be in this fight for equal rights. And I believe it's still the greatest tool that we have. And Peter goes on in the end of chapter 2. He starts to talk about those that, that hate the government. Go figure. He's addressing slaves or, 
or servants or, or masters and employers. He's talking about all these dynamics that are totally messed up because of what Jesus did on the cross. And he's talking about how these different people groups should treat each other. And he's using words like obedience, gentleness, goodness, mindfulness, respect, honor, and servanthood. Do we think these things just vanish when it comes to the most important relationship in our life? Besides our relationship with Jesus Christ, of course. I don't think so. And I truly believe that God has called women to come under Christ and to come under their man. But it's not the way the world would describe it. I mean, the world would say that it's controlling and and they would say that it's confinement and they would say that it's bondage. But I believe that we should understand it as freeing. Just like we see the rest of the Bible. The world says the same thing about us Christians and we see Jesus Christ as freeing. Let's go back to the text. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is so important. He's not talking about being obedient to all men. He's saying your own husbands. He's saying be obedient in your relationship. He's not saying that you ladies can't be boss ladies in the business world and dominated. He's not saying that at all. He's saying lay aside your pride and your dominance and be like Christ in the most important relationship on this earth. I ask you, what if Christ was unwilling to lay down His life for you and I? Why be subject? Because first of all, when Peter is writing this, and just today, every day, there are unbelieving husbands. And that has not changed at all. And second of all, do you want a good marriage? I've never looked at a marriage and said, we want a crappy marriage. Sorry, I shouldn't use that from the pulpit. We we don't want a good marriage. And you see, a good marriage is based in servanthood. A good marriage is caring about the other more than we care about ourselves. And do we care about the salvation of our spouse? Do we care about saving our marriage? The next words in the text say, so that even some do not obey the word. These are those that are unbelievers. They're not walking with Christ. And I've never met a wife that doesn't want her husband to come to Jesus. So what's the best way to accomplish this? Let's look on in the text. So they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Ladies like to talk. A study in Time magazine found that women say 20,000 words a day and a man only says 7,000. But this text right here is saying that if, if you have a husband who is not a believer, stop talking and start doing Proverbs 27 compares a nagging wife to the dripping of water. If you're like dripping water, I'm telling you right now, you will either annoy them or they will tune you out. Please, I beg you to start acting like Jesus in your conduct, which looks like we see in verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, show your husband respect. This means that you don't blast your favorite pastor on the radio or the the TV because your man is not coming to church and, and he needs to hear the Word of God. We need to pound it down his throat. That's not what I'm saying. Don't do that. 
First of all, he's not listening. Men have this amazing ability to tune out everything that we do not want to hear. And I know it's amazing to you ladies, but it's the truth, I promise you. This also means that that you don't just do whatever your man wants. You don't go against this moral standard that God has set. You don't bend in this purity that it talks about. You must have pure motives. I promise you, you will never bring him to Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to get out of the way. And you do it by respecting everybody, especially him. By speaking nicely of your lady friends. By speaking nicely of Him to your lady friends. By being helpful. By being loving to all people, especially Him. And did I mention respecting Him? I mean, a man, he needs respect. We, we crave it. We would do just about anything for it. And then I ask you to pray for Him. And do not hold love back from Him. And when I'm talking about love, I'm not talking about just love. I'm talking about love. The Song of Solomon 4.15 describes you ladies as a well of living water. And Proverbs 5.15 instructs men to not only drink, to, to only drink from their own cistern. Every other well, every other water source is poison. And only you, ladies, are able to quench our thirst without spiritual poisoning. I promise you, we are in this fight together. And this doesn't mean that men, we don't have a responsibility. We do. We are to act and respect and love our wives. We don't get to reap rewards without doing what God has called us also. And men, we'll get to you verse 7. Women, I beg you, don't nag. I mean, cheer on your man. Be his biggest supporter. Do not bend your morals, but but delight in loving him. Living life with him and and help him mold and shape him by your actions. The other day I heard Cody call Sharissa the most genuine person he has ever met. Now I get it, they're just figuring this thing out. But I ask you ladies, are you the most genuine person that your husband has ever met. I know that Sharissa is not changing. And I promise you that we should always be genuine. So what's that look like? Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. And very few times when I read the English text in the Bible do I think they missed it. But I think they missed it right here. This word adorning means to make oneself more attractive or or beautiful. Which makes sense, but but I think it's deeper than that. You see, this word adorning is cosmos, which is our word for cosmos. The universe. Is, Is your universe, is your world rooted in the way you look eternally or externally? You see, there are plenty of ways to dress nicely in this world while while focusing the attention not to yourself, not to your outward beauty, but to Jesus, to God, to your inward beauty. And Peter, right here, he's addressing this Roman culture. Women are dressing and competing with each other for the latest fashions and, and hairdos. Sound familiar? 
Women are twisting and braiding their hair high on their heads. And they're adorning it with gold jewelry and accents and fine clothing so they could garner attention for themselves and show show off their outward beauty and wealth. I ask us today, are we drawing attention to ourselves? Or are we drawing attention to God? And then on the other side, this supremacy crowd would say that, that women should never braid their hair, that, that women should never wear jewelry, that women should always wear dresses. And I look at this and I see a disservice in it. I believe that we are to focus on the fashions that demonstrate modesty while at the same time appealing to women that we want to share this faith with. I mean, if we show up in an 1800s dress, are we not setting ourselves apart? Are we not drawing attention to what we're wearing? Clothes must never be the focus. Your relationship with Christ is the focus. And today, I can't lay out rules of what it looks like for a woman to dress, a godly woman to dress. But I ask you, I ask you today, would you wear that if Jesus was sitting right next to you? It's a good litmus test. Our God, He looks at something so much deeper. He looks at our heart. Verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Is your universe based on your heart and and who resides in you? The spirit who resides in you, who has transformed your heart from black and, and sinful, wretched and hateful, to gentle and quiet. I remember how angry I used to be. Everything. I would get so mad and I would go into this rage. And when, and when the Holy Spirit took over, it was like that rage turned to almost a, a crying, almost a gentleness. I'm so glad that it, that it changed me to be more gentle and have a gentle spirit. And I ask us, is this where our focus is? You see, we're only in our 20s for so long. And we can pretend that we're beautiful for a long time. We can get plastic surgery, which I don't recommend. And you may exercise and you may eat right, but every one of us is getting older. Gravity is starting to kick in. Things are starting to sag. Wrinkles are showing up. Hair is going gray and vanishing for some of us. But the heart... The inside of a person is imperishable. And I look at the Claudes and the Doris Wares of the worlds and the, and the Waynes and the, and the Marge Porters, and I see something beautiful. Now, Doris and Marge, they have aged wonderfully. There is no doubt about that. But what I see so beautiful is how their husbands still see them every bit as beautiful as they did when they were first getting together. And their marriage is built on complete beauty, inside to outside. When I look at these men, I see this gentleness and and how they're quiet with their wives, and I see this gentleness and and quietness and, and how their wives respond to them. Now, that doesn't mean they don't talk. It doesn't mean that at all. It means when they talk, they do it with with God's will, with God's purpose. And it doesn't mean that they don't fight. 
But I can promise you that they know when they fight that at the end, the end of the storm, that there will be peace and that they will still be walking together with Jesus as their foundation. You want a good marriage? Talk to those that have done it and have done it well. Man, when I look at these two men, I see them and they look at their wives as precious. Just like God does. Do you want your husband to see you as precious? Verse 5. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husband. When you are in God, God adorned you. God is your world. God who is, is who makes us holy. God is who we surrender to. And it, and it means doing what He asks. Do we truly believe in the inspiration of this Bible? God knows best. You want to be holy? Let God adorn you. You want a good marriage? Be a servant to your husband in your actions. And we want an example of what this looks like. The Bible gives us Sarah, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now I'm pretty sure Ryan is never going to call me Lord. But do people see a reverence in how you treat your husband? Do people look at your marriage and envy it? Not just because you put on a display in this church or in public, but, but how do you act in your house? Do your children envy your marriage? Do they look at your marriage and know that you adore your husband? Do they look at your marriage and see God adorning it? And through all of this, ladies, this doesn't mean that you can't be beautiful. It doesn't mean that you can't be beautiful on the outside, but, but it frees us because God defines the beauty, not this world. I mean, even Sarah was smoking hot and not quite those words, but Genesis 12, 14 tells us that the Egyptians thought Sarah was, was very beautiful. She's 65 and she still looks good. But what's more important is that she was obedient in, in so many ways. I mean, can you imagine your husband coming in and telling you that you need to leave your family and your friends and everything you know and move a little bit further than Omaha? And then Abraham tells her, God is telling us to move to a land that He has promised. I've never seen this land before, nor have I even knew this God that's telling me. But I'm pretty sure He's telling us that we're supposed to go. And what does Sarah say? She says, I love you. And I love your God, and I will go where you go. And then Abraham adds a little bit of a, a nugget. He's like, oh yeah, God, He's going to give us this offspring. And this offspring is, is going to be for this promised land. And Abraham's 75. Sarah's 65. I mean, this is some serious trust. And I get it, Sarah's not perfect. But she trusted in God. She had her own faith. And at the same time, she supported her husband's faith. Hebrews 11, 11 through 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one mankind, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 
Now, a little side note. I would never tell your wife or your husband that they are good as dead and how they look. But it describes how amazing God's power is. He can take two people who are completely out of child-rearing age and produce the entire Israelite nation, which is the building block for the birth of Jesus. Verse 6. Are you Sarah's children? If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. We are spiritual descendants of Sarah. If we trust in Jesus. She is the matriarch of the Israelite nation. She is the matriarch of our faith. And how great is it if you are a woman to know that even if your man is not leading like Jesus would have him, that you still have Jesus. And men, even though she has Jesus and Jesus is enough, I'm here to tell you that every great marriage requires the both of you. And I ask us men, do you create an atmosphere of faith or fear in your household? Zach Williams' song, Fear is a Liar, starts like this. When he told you you're not good enough. When he told you you're not right. When he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight. When he told you you're not worthy. When he told you you're not loved. When he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough. Men, these words must never come out of our mouth. Because they are the work of Satan. If our wives are not going to fear, then we must not give them a reason to fear. We must be the first to build up our wives. She is good enough. She is right. She is strong enough. She is worthy. She is lovely. She is beautiful. She is enough. A truly great marriage requires a man to hold to these same standards that Peter is laying out. It requires us to take the time to truly get to know our wives. Warren Wiersbe would describe knowing our wives in these four areas. Physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Verse 7 talks about this physical side. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. Live with your wives. Wearsby mentions this study where, where the average couple only spends 37 minutes a week communicating. How are we to love another if we are never with another, if we are never talking to one another? Is your spouse your best friend? Are we actually taking the time to get to know our spouse, to actually live together with our spouse? And then we go on in an understanding way. Intellectually. Do we spend time getting to know our wives, understanding them? Even our children it goes to. You see, the Bible is this equal opportunity gut punch. Men, you must serve your wife. You must be the greatest servant in your household you should know your wife and your children better than anybody else. And if you are to lead your family, you must do it better and work harder and earn the respect of your family. I am terrible at this. So I want everyone to take out a piece of paper. And I put these questions in the bulletin. 
If you don't have a piece of paper, that's all right. You can just listen. I didn't expect some of the men to have it, to be honest. But I'm going to give you just a second of time as you, as you write these down. I want you to write the three things that you enjoy most doing with your spouse. And the funny thing that happens as you're, as you're writing these down is you see the wife usually has no problem with it. And the husband, we have to think and think. And usually the wife gets it right. And, and yeah, I get it. Wives, you must know your husbands. But men, are we taking the time to know our wives? Their moods, their feelings, their needs, their fears, their hopes. I ask us to listen with our heart and share meaningful communications with hers. What about emotionally? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Are you her knight in shining armor? I don't care what anybody says. Even the staunchest feminist would love a man that treated her like a princess at home. Even if she tries to put off a rough exterior. Did you know the name Sarah means princess in Hebrew? Husbands, we must treat our women like she is a precious treasure. Like she is valuable. You see, my wife, she goes crazy over tiaras. And I would venture to say that my wife is more independent or at least as much independent as most of the women in this room. And now most of the women didn't hear a word that I just said because they were wondering how I was going to preach about them being the weaker vessel. I mean, how dare I call her a weaker vessel? First of all, it wasn't me that called her a weaker vessel. It was the Bible. My job is just to be the messenger. But even so, relax. I'm pretty sure there's only a select few women that can bench press more than their man. And men, for the most part, are physically stronger. And I believe that women want a man that will make them feel secure, loved, and wanted. Not a man that will use his strength for abuse. That is never okay. Never okay. And besides the fact, women are stronger in just about every other category, so you could maybe give us this one. We have different strengths and, and weaknesses that, that God can use to grow us closer to the Lord. But the cool thing about it is the Bible. Jesus Christ declares us equal in our relationship status in Him. We are equal heirs in the ultimate grace seen in Jesus Christ. The end of verse 7, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Spiritually, we are working against each other. When we are not getting along, our prayers are hindered. And my guess is that very few people in this room, very few couples in this room pray together on a regular basis. And my challenge this week for you is to pray together every day and see God work in building your relationship, not just with your spouse, but with Jesus. i got to be honest with you, I'm not sure how any marriage works without Jesus. And another challenge I have for you. You see, Pastor Bill and I, we work hard on these sermon notes for, for the small groups. We try to put these thought-provoking questions in there. 
And this week I had this survey in there, and I'd ask you to take this survey, even if you're not in a small group. And if you don't have a spouse, think about somebody that's a really good friend of yours. And these are the questions. Number one, are we partners or competitors? Number two, are we helping each other become more spiritual? Number three, are we depending on the externals or the internals? Artificial or real? Number four, do we understand each other? Number five, are we sensitive to each other's feelings and ideas or do we take each other for granted? Number six, are we seeing God answer our prayers? And we can't see God answer our prayers if we're not praying. And number seven, are we enriched because of our marriage or our friendship? Or are we robbing each other of God's blessing? Now, I would encourage you to sign up for a small group. But even if you don't, I would challenge you to take these small group questions and to take some time during the week to dive into them together. And I believe, I truly believe that if you dive into the Word of God, not these questions so much, but the Word of God together, that it will grow your relationship and it will allow you to understand what it means to be subject to one another so that you can grow closer together and have God as the foundation of your marriage so that you can serve one another the way Jesus Christ did it on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are willing to give up everything and to come down here and to to hang on a cross for us who are completely unruly, completely unworthy, completely gross, but yet you love us anyways. I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a supernatural ability to love each other the way Jesus did. That love would would go to each and every relationship that we have. Lord, thank You for giving us a a gentle and quiet spirit through Your Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.